Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number three in our series for 2024, and today's date is Friday, February the 16th. First, I'll be talking to Nina Webster, the Managing Director of Demerix, a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company with a portfolio of drug candidates for inflammatory diseases including kidney and respiratory diseases. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's in the market for the week ahead. But first, let's talk to Nina Webster. Well, Nina, tell us about Dimerix. Absolutely. So Dimerix is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company. We have a portfolio of drug candidates in inflammatory diseases, including kidney and respiratory disease. Our lead asset is a, a compound called DMX200, and that's in phase three clinical trials for a treatment for focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, which is a rare type of kidney disease, as well as our drug candidate DMX700 in a development for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And both of these were identified using our proprietary platform technology called Receptor Hit. Now, tell us about FSGS. Who does it affect? So FSGS is a rare disease. Uh, it's called an orphan indication, and it affects children as young as two years old as well as adults. Sadly, the uh, prognosis is very poor for these patients because there's no drug approved anywhere in the world. And unfortunately, kidney uh, failure is typically within about five years of diagnosis. For those fortunate enough to get a transplant, around 60% of those get reoccurring FSGS in the transplanted kidney. So again, the, the prognosis is very poor and very much in need for a treatment such as DMX200. Transplant does not work as well. That's right. And nobody knows why. That's the sad thing. There's some circulating factor that in the transplanted kidney, it, it uh, is also impacted. So tell us about the work that has gone into this. Yeah, so uh, we've been founded in 2004. Uh, we've been working on the DMX200 assets since about 2012. So it's been about 10 years into development, uh, which from a biotech uh, pharmaceutical perspective is actually a short period of time. And we're in what's called a phase three clinical trial, which is the last trial before going to market. This trial is open globally. It's in 11 different countries in 70 clinical sites at the moment, recruiting these FSGS patients to 2024 we would expect to see the second interim outcome from this study. And if successful, we can then submit for marketing approval at that point in time because it is a rare disease. So it won't actually get onto the market till 2025? It expected to be on the market around 2025. That is correct. That's quite extraordinary because you 
set up in 2012, did you say? 2012 is when we started on this asset, but typically developing it, development in biopharmaceutical uh, is around 10 to 15 years of development. So if you're looking at a phase one asset, they're probably around 10 to 15 years away from market. We're in that final stage, so we're within the two years. So anyone who sets up a business in biotech needs a hell of a lot of patients. That's exactly right. It's a very different uh, portfolio to invest in as well uh, versus uh, resources. Is that, is that an issue for you in terms of attracting investors to that because of that long time frame? Uh, not particularly. I think you have a particular investor who has the appetite for um, investment into biotech. Biotech, when we get success, typically success is very big. And therefore, whilst the, the risk is potentially higher, the reward is also a magnitude higher. Tell us about the, the firm itself. How many do you have working So we're a company of about 12 employees at the moment. So it's relatively uh, small. We have each of those core functions within that very, very skilled, capable employees across our clinical, regulatory, manufacturing, intellectual property uh, areas. Um, each of our team members is very experienced in drug development, has taken products from inception right through to marketing approval in the past. So a uh, very, very good team to deliver on this program. And you're all based in Melbourne, is that right? We are all based in Melbourne at the moment, yes. Now, tell us about the actual effect on, on children itself. Uh, you say it affects children as young as two? That's right. So when a, a patient presents with a kidney disease, um, often they'll have accompanying edema. So there's a lot of swelling in the tissues, uh, yellowing of the skin. Uh, they can be quite unwell and they typically have what's called uh, protein in the urine. So very high protein spills into the urine. What happens is in a healthy person, a healthy child or a healthy adult, the kidney is a really, really good filter and it effectively filters out all, filters out all protein from the blood. What happens in the, as the kidney becomes more and more damaged, it becomes quite leaky. And so you end up with this protein spilling into the urine and end up with this very high urinary uh, infection, uh, sorry, high urine protein content as well. What causes it? Uh, well, FSGS, the, the predominant cause is unknown. And that's one of the challenges because as I mentioned before, the, those who end up with a, a kidney transplant around 60% get reoccurring FSGS in the transplanted kidney. And nobody knows why. Really? Yeah, it's very, very uh, poor prognosis for these patients. And with uh, no effective treatment anywhere in the world at the moment, no treatment approved for FSGS, it is a big unmet need. So if DMX200 is successful in this clinical trial, there is a, certainly a very, very big market potential for this drug. But how difficult would it be to prepare DMX200 when you don't really have an idea of why? The disease occurring. The, it's the um, what we're treating though is that inflammatory pathway. So if we think about the key three key mechanisms in kidney disease, the first one is this hypertension, hyperfiltration. So imagine the blood vessels in the kidney are working really, really hard, and that causes inflammation. Now that inflammation is ongoing and persistent, so it causes fibrosis, which is a type of scarring, and you lose those cells. Yeah. As those cells die off, they cannot regenerate in the kidney. They, unfortunately, it's, it's a progressive disease, and you end up at that point number one, where now the blood vessels, there's less cells, have to work even harder. So now that causes more inflammation, causes more cell death. And you can imagine in this cycle, you go round and round faster and faster as you have fewer and fewer cells until you get to a point where there are not enough cells to effectively filter the blood and your kidney fails. So, so basically though, your medication will be treating the symptoms 
rather than the cause of it. Would that it's be right? treating that inflammatory pathway. So it reduces yeah. the inflammation. Um, and what it does is by reducing the inflammation, it reduces the fibrosis or scarring. So you maintain those cells. So instead of coming down your kidney disease slope here, you're going to try and keep it as flat as you can and maintain your kidney function. That would take an extraordinary discipline of research, wouldn't it? It does. And it's amazing, actually, when you think about that inflammatory pathway, I, I mentioned at the start, we focus on inflammatory diseases. Uh, one of those is kidney disease and, of course, respiratory disease. That principle of inflammation is implicated in a raft of, of other uh, diseases as well. So the inflammatory pathway is has a high implication in a number of diseases. Which could make DMX200 quite exciting because it could actually be used to treat other diseases. Would that be right? That has the potential to do that, absolutely. So it's it, DMX200 is what is called a CCR2 antagonist. And so it actually does turn off the response for the inflama inflammation. But it could potentially treat other diseases. Correct, yes. So it could have much broader broader implications than just kidney disease. Yes, CCR2 has been implicated in a whole raft of, of diseases, um, uh, all from the inflammatory background uh, and, and uh, cause. Kidney disease is the first one we're going for. Uh, focal cemental glomerulosclerosis is that rare disease. And the reason that that is so attractive to us in the first instance, because it's an orphan disease, it means that we have a faster pathway to market we get an accelerated review period, and we also get what's called orphan drug pricing. Now, because there are fewer patients that have the disease, there has to be an incentive for companies to develop the drug. Otherwise, there's no market. There's no commercial need for the company to do this. So they get what's called orphan drug pricing, and orphan drug pricing is usually a lot higher. The average orphan drug in the US retails at $7,000 per month. Now, that's the average, and there are some that will be up at 100000 and there'll be some down that are lower. But that gives you a sense of these drugs retail at a much higher price because otherwise there's no incentive for a company to do it. But with the orphan drug pricing, the accelerated pathway to market, so we can go for accelerated drug approval, as well as the what we get uh, is orphan exclusivity. That means that if we get the product to market, it cannot be challenged by a generic for 10 years in Europe and seven years in the US. So it's a very valuable exclusivity period that nobody else can enter the market. And you would be the only company developing this kind of drug? So we're the only company developing a CCR at two antagonist. In terms of FSGS, there is one other company developing a phase three compound at the moment. Conveniently for us, it's actually very complementary to us. It's not competitive at all. Um, and in fact, the, they've um, they've got approval for a different indication, not FSGS at the moment, and they have priced theirs at nine thousand nine hundred US dollars per month. So it tells you it's a very attractive market. Absolutely, at that sort of price, yes. Well, Nina, it's been a privilege talking to you, and thank you very much for your time and good luck. Thank you so much, Leon. Really appreciate your time. And now let's talk to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James. Okay, Craig, what's in store for the market? In the week ahead? It's going to be a fairly quiet affair. Uh, we haven't got too many market leading indicators uh, coming out. Uh, consumer sentiment, uh, that always comes out. The weekly measure always comes out on the Tuesday from ANZ and Roy Morgan. It's got a measure of inflation expectations. So in the current environment, that's quite important to be able to see how they're, they're tracking. Uh, the two major uh, events uh, in the coming week is um, on Tuesday, the minutes of the last Reserve Bank board meeting, 
and remembering that there was a there was a two day meeting uh, for the first time that we, we've seen it um, this year, um, and the wage price index is coming out on, on Wednesday. So the main measure of wages in Australia, wages are currently growing near four percent, and uh, that will be very much in focus. Uh, the tail end of the week, um, we've got the the flash purchasing managers index coming out on Thursday, together with average weekly earnings and also some more detail in terms of the labour force getting into the demographic and the regional uh, data. So a fairly quiet week in, in Australia. and uh, The United States, uh, we've got minutes of the last Federal Reserve meeting, so similar to, to Australia, we've got that coming out on Wednesday. Um, and um, then the, the tail end of the week, we've got uh, things like the Flash Purchasing Managers Index, as we do in Australia, coming out on Thursday and existing home sales on Friday. But um, the other major focus in the coming week is the profit reporting season that will be in full swing. Uh, we've got some heavyweight companies that will be reporting over the coming week, uh, including uh, BHP, uh, Rio Tinto, uh, Fortescue, um, Domino's Pizza and, and Woolworths. So um, the, really the who's who of uh, corporate Australia. And so far what we've seen in terms of the profit reporting season has been quite encouraging. Companies... Um, have seen their share price increase on the the day of the the report, um, and generally yes, the the profits are meeting or beating expectations. So uh, that's uh, has analysts somewhat scratching their heads because uh, it um, we're seeing so many companies talking about um, uh, complications and challenging challenges in the the economic environment, uh, but what we're seeing in in terms of the companies is that they're actually holding up quite well. So the two themes from the last profit reporting season, challenging conditions, but the resilience of the economy and, and companies are very much showing through. As I say, you know, sort of the, if we're thinking of um, economic data, though, it's uh, those wage figures coming out on Wednesday. Uh, what are the wage figures going to be shown? Well, the expectation of... Um, uh, Bloomberg, yes, the survey of Bloomberg, yes, survey of economists, uh, believe that the annual rate will be somewhere between four and four point three percent. So we've got wages at the moment growing at a four percent annual pace, uh, which uh, would be okay if, in the normal world, if you had productivity growth growing one to one and a half percent. The ready reckoner is that if you want the midpoint of the inflation targeting band, two and a half percent. Uh, what you need to have is um, uh, in, in productivity growing somewhere around about one to one and a half percent to justify something up around about four percent for for wages. So at the moment we're a little bit on the top side for that, and um, what we really need to see you know, sort of is productivity starting to improve. And I think that that will come. Um, it, we, we've got to remember that we've seen some very strong job growth over the last couple of years, and it takes time for people getting a new job, getting into the, uh, the, the, the procedures in, in the new job and, you know, sort of, um, and getting their productivity you know, sort of up a little bit. You know, sort of, so um, I think it will come, but you know, so this is something which the Reserve Bank is very much focused on, the fact that um, wages at 4% um, with zero productivity are growing slightly above you know, so where they want inflation to be at 2.5%. Right, okay. And what does that mean for rates? For, for, well, for the RBA in terms well, of yeah certainly I mean you sort of if um, uh, we see um, wages continue to hold up uh, prices um, then what we see is the Reserve Bank remaining on the sideline for a longer period of time now 
the the current expectation in terms of um, uh, economists is that, uh, and the financial market more generally, is that we start to see yes, interest rates coming through, perhaps August, perhaps September. Certainly, the Commonwealth Bank Group view is that we'll see um, um, the first in interest rate cut in September. We think by that time it'll show sufficient slowdown in the economy, uh, sufficient slowing in terms of inflation as well, or the disinflation coming through. And um, then once we, we get to through to September, the expectation is that um, uh, the underlying rate of inflation will be uh, back in the target band either late this year or early next year. So that's a little bit above the forecast for the Reserve Bank. Reserve Bank doesn't believe that uh, will be sustainably in the um, two to three percent target band until probably 2026. But um, I think they're playing that you know, sort of a safety first this time. Uh, they don't want to get into the same trouble that they got in um, a few years ago when um, Phil Lowe predicted that um, interest rates wouldn't need to change. And of course, that, that turned out to be not the case that interest rates you know, went up. So I think they're being a little bit cautious about um, uh, when the first interest rate you know, reduction will start to occur. But um, uh, very much when you're thinking about interest rates, you're thinking about inflation, you're thinking about wages. Um, and that's why you know, sort of the, the wage data on uh, Wednesday and the average weekly earnings on Thursday are going to be super important. Right. Okay. Okay. And what do you make of the profit reporting season generally at the moment? I mean, there's been some pretty good challenges there. Yeah, no, it's been quite you know, sort of interesting you know, sort of so far. Um, the majority of companies so far have uh, seen their share price rise on the day after the or the day of the uh, the profit announced, profit being announced, um, and uh, that suggests that um, uh, the uh, companies are either meeting or beating expectations with uh, either some or all of the metrics. Um, of course, you know, so we look at things like um, uh, revenue, profitability, as well as looking at things like you know, sort of dividend payments and and looking at the definitive outlook statements that are coming out from companies. Um, and um, it's a similar sort of um, uh, environment that we saw, you know, sort of probably six months ago when companies were saying these are challenging times that we're in, um, and then you know, sort of highlighting the fact that they're doing you know, sort of okay. So I think what we are seeing is companies um, um, making sure that their expenses, you know, sort of constrained, they're, they're running a tight ship, um, and um, that's being reflected in the fact that um, uh, earnings are growing um, at a modest level, but um, uh, still enough to exceed. Um, uh, the um, expenses uh, or cost of sales and, and profits, you know, sort of therefore, you know, sort of holding up quite nicely. I think what we are seeing is that while companies are paying dividends, still still um, keen to, to pay dividends, they are generally smaller than what we saw, you know, so 12 months ago. Right. Okay. Okay. Which, uh, which and surprisingly, though, the share prices have increased. Yeah, I think it's the, the fact that... Um, uh, companies are being shown to be fairly responsible about um, keeping their house in order. Um, we we do know the economy has slowed. We do know that um, businesses and consumers um, are slowing down their, their rate of spending. The economy is probably you know, sort of ground to somewhat of a halt at the moment. We're thinking you know, sort of GDP for the um, or economic growth for the December quarter that we've just been in will be close to close to zero. So um, uh, flat economy. Um, we've got an unemployment rate starting to creep up a little bit yesterday as well. Um, and um, 
we think yes you know, so that will show up yes you know, so down the track as further signs of uh, disinflation in the economy um, and uh, further moderation you know, sort of of wage growth but um, uh, the disinflation certainly is happening at a goods level um, what is uh, very much a common feature around the world is um, the, um, uh, the the fact that uh, services inflation remains a little bit on the high side and uh, that's where uh, central banks, including our own here in Australia, would like to see a bit further progress in terms of getting that services inflation down. And that's things like cafes and restaurants, insurance or financial services, um, hairdressing services, vets, you know, sort of a whole range. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Um, um, uh, activities, you know, sort of fall under that services umbrella. Right, okay. And uh, so all of that would be relevant to whether the RBA cuts interest rates or that they've warned that uh, not to be surprised if we can see an increase in yeah, yeah, well. I suppose you can never rule it out. And you know, so the, what the Reserve Bank is trying to do is put its uh, foot on inflationary expectations. Um, doesn't want to get those you know, sort of um, starting to, to rise again. Uh, of course, if you want to get inflation down to 2 to 3%, you've got to have people believing that inflation is going to get down to 2 to 3%. And that's the bottom line. Um, but um, if that's not the case and we see... see inflation remaining stubbornly high above the 2 to 3% target ban, then the Reserve Bank will say, look, we've got no alternative. We, we're going to have to increase rates again because uh, you know, so we, we still haven't you know, so got, got to our goal or haven't got to our goal as quickly as what we need to to prevent inflation expectations starting to be cemented at a higher level. It's been great talking to you and thank you very much for your time. Not a problem at all. So what's happening in the news? Well, at least 150 Australian taxation office officials have been investigated over a far-reaching GST fraud scheme with 12 terminated or facing criminal prosecution. The extraordinary figures was revealed in an Auditor-General's report that found the ATO's management and oversight of fraud control arrangements for GST is lacking, whilst internal risk framework is not fit for purpose. Outside the ATO, at least 100 arrests have taken place, and so far at least 16 people have received criminal conviction. Authorities estimate there have been more than 57,000 perpetrators of a TikTok GST fraud scheme promoted on the popular social media app as a way to get a loan from the government. Individuals register a fake business, get an ABN, register for GST and then immediately file a business activity statement claiming credit for previous but not legitimate GST payments. Despite more than $81 billion in GST collections every year, this week's Auditor-General's report warned oversight and reporting of GST fraud within the ATO is only partly effective, as internal roles and responsibilities are not clear. 
An ATO spokeswoman said the majority of the 150 officials were former contractors or former employees and were not working with the ATO at the time of suspected fraud. Some were found to be victims of identity theft. Action has been taken against 12 people who were substantiated as having committed the fraud while working at the ATO. More than 4,700 tip-offs related to GST fraud have been received by the ATO since 2019-20. Penalties of more than $120 million were issued before June 30 last year, with interest of about $220 million and continuing to accrue. As of August 31, the ATO said it had recovered $123 million, including $67.6 million recovered via bank garnishing notices. The fraud was uncovered by Westpac and other banks, some of which passed on a series of alerts to the ATO from 2020. But after being frustrated by the apparent lack of action by the ATO, some bank staff shared their concerns informally with the Reserve Bank, which then alerted Treasury in the tax office in February last year. Accountants in Western Sydney, where the fraud went viral in mid-2021, have found new examples in recent tax returns, suggesting that the fraud activity is continuing. The ATO agreed to five recommendations from the Auditor-General and has established a Fraud and Criminal Behaviours Unit to focus on further protecting against fraud. In a statement, the ATO said it takes all fraud attempts seriously and will work with the task force and other agencies to go after individuals suspected of doing the wrong thing. And Sydney's eye-watering house prices are driving an exodus of young families and a failure to reverse a trend could see Australia's harbour city become known as a place with no grandchildren, the New South Wales State Productivity Commissioner warned. Between 2016 and 2021, Sydney lost twice as many people in the 30 to 40 year age group as it gained, highlighting the need for increasing housing density, Peter Achsertrat said in a video on Tuesday accompanying a new Productivity Commission report. Many young families are leaving Sydney because they can't afford to buy a home, or they can only afford one in the outer suburb with a long commute, Axterstrat said as he launched the report titled What We Gain by Building More Homes in the Right Places. Australia is one of the least affordable countries in the world for housing as a combination of strong population growth, limited construction and a trend towards smaller households produces a massive shortfall of dwellings. The problem is exacerbated in Sydney, where there's strong opposition to high apartment blocks among local residents. That's at a time when rebound in immigration means that more than one million net arrivals in Australia for the next five years will need somewhere to live. Migrants tend to congregate in major cities like Sydney. Compared to global counterparts such as London, New York or Paris, Sydney has lower density in the city suburbs, which means there's ample room to grow upwards, the report showed. Astatrat said he hoped to help shift Sydney siders' mentality from not in my backyard to appropriate density in my backyard. The report found that Sydney would have generated 45,000 additional dwellings without any extra land if buildings constructed between 2017 and 2022 had been an average of 10 storeys high instead of 7. This would have seen prices and rent 5.5% lower, leading to an annual saving of $1,800 for renters. Asatrat said, We know from overseas that density done well provides benefits for households, communities and the economy, Asatrat said. I'm confident we can make density work for us. Axitrat also said it was time for a fresh discussion on heritage restrictions on housing close to the central district. He pointed to the proliferation of heritage conservation areas, HCAs, that limit new housing, affecting more than half of residential land in prime Sydney suburbs. This reduces the amount available for new housing near the city. We can preserve the gems of Sydney's heritage without inadvertently freezing young people out, Axitrat said. And Communications Minister Michelle Rowland says X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, could face huge fines when new laws are introduced this year for failing to prevent mis- and disinformation. Citing a litany of recent issues, including the spread of Taylor Swift 
deep fake pornography, reinstating 6,000 band accounts and being sued into the federal court over failing to comply with basic safety expectations relating to child exploitation material. Ms Rowland said it was clear X would face big trouble if the platform continued as it had. Last year, the Albanese government released draft laws that would guarantee new powers to the Australian Communications and Media Authority to combat mis- and disinformation online. Key to the laws is the creation of an industry-generated code of conduct for platforms and additional powers for ACMA to impose strict standards if it decides a code is not stopping mis- and disinformation. In November last year, X was ejected from the industry code for a serious breach, refusing to cooperate with the industry peak body, DIGI, and failing to undertake remedial action. The complaint related to X removing the ability of its users to report content that violated its civic integrity policy. The ejection came just weeks after the eSafety Commission launched federal court action against the company for allegedly failing to truthfully and accurately provide information to certain questions in the notice, which itself came after the Commission fined X $610,500 for failing to comply with the reporting notice. X has not paid the fine and has sought judicial review. Under Ms Rowland's proposed mis- and disinformation laws, if X refuses to cooperate with an ACMA inquiry or comply with the Code of Conduct registered under the Act, it could face fines of up to $3 million or 2% of annual turnover. If it fails to comply with the ACMA standards, the penalty could be greater of $7.8 million or 5% of the platform's annual turnover. And the boom in property construction during the pandemic has led to a booming market for disputes as developers, builders and funders battle over big-ticket projects gone wrong. Litigation funders are moving to target this growing area, with ASIC-listed Omni Bridgeway muscling in on the scene as all sides clamour for funding to bankroll the costly disputes. Omni Bridgeway also has its eye on a ballooning number of renewable energy projects under construction, with many triggering disputes as complex jobs face cost overruns or disputes between contractors. Law firms are also gearing up for more disputes following several high-profile property collapses and a long list of troubled projects gone wrong as cost overruns or bill quality disputes land in the courts. Omni Bridgeway investment manager Mitchell Demas said construction companies often face the question of which of their many disputes were worth fighting. In-house legal and contract management teams are often not adequately resourced to assess claims and as a consequence claims are not pursued or they are settled at at well below their fair value, he said. At its recent results, Omni Bridgeway revealed it committed more than $260 million in the first half of 2024 financial year to new disputes, with a strong pipeline of new investment opportunities. Omni Bridgeway has been funding construction disputes in Britain, Singapore and Dubai for some time, with Australia's high-rise and major project boom a catalyst for the funder's attention. Baker McKenzie National Head of Construction Emmanuel Comfos said the construction sector was facing a confluence of pressure point factors, resulting in an increase in construction disputes. In particular, we're seeing a shortage of both materials and labour, combined with a record investment in the infrastructure space, leading to price increases at levels that are historically high, he said. Baker McKenzie National Construction Practice Senior Partner Harriet Oldmeadow said, while owners, developers and contractors want a harmonious working relationship, disputes often descended into protracted fights. And senators say they have no confidence and are worried about PwC's ethical practices as it continues to withhold a global report on its misuse of government information from the inquiry into consulting services. PwC Australia CEO Kevin Burrows told the Finance and Public Administration Committee on Friday that PwC International had refused to share the document which detailed findings from an independent review finalised in September. 
Senator Richard Colbeck, who chairs inquiry, said the lack of transparency undermined the firm's efforts to right its wrongs in the aftermath of the tax leak scandal. I can't in any good conscience acknowledge that I have confidence that when your organisation, and you are part of that organisation, is thumbing their nose at our parliament, he said. This should be released as a demonstration of the so-called new leaf that you're trying to project. But how do we have any confidence in the things you say that you're doing when we're treated with disrespect? PwC International commissioned the report from law firm Linklaters in May. It found no evidence of PwC personnel outside of Australia misusing confidential information for commercial gain, but that six international partners should have raised concerns as to whether the information was confidential, according to a statement from PwC in September. When Mr Burroughs appeared in front of the committee in October, he admitted no one from PwC Australia was privy to its details. PwC also withheld a report from the TPB and ATO, the regulators warned on Friday. And what to make of the sudden departure of more top female talent from Australia's post-executive team? In the very months after the CEO Paul Graham called in consultants sliced fat across the organisation and slim headcounts in the C-suite? A confluence of events that, if one is to believe Australia Post, is entirely coincidental. But the unavoidable truth is that women, once equal in number to the men in the executive, are back to a vanishing small minority. There's only one left. Cast the mind back to the closing months of 2022, and they were evenly split among the eight-member posse of EGMs. And now, it's an embarrassment of Windsor and bad haircuts. It's guys named Mike and Paul and Gary and Rod. Leonie Valentine was the first to disappear from the company website in February 2023, ending her time at Australia Post after a startlingly short 13 months. Valentine had been tasked with leading Australia Post's Gender Action Plan, which at this point looks to have been thrown from a high window. It's getting tough to keep count of the senior women who've left in her wake. Chief Marketing Officer Amber Collins, General Manager Fiona De Silva, Government Relations Head Sally McKenzie. Now add to that the very quiet departure of Executive General Manager Tanny Mangos. She resigned last month, no word of departure from Australia Post. Mangos, two years in the role, flagged her exit on LinkedIn with a fating of CEO Graham, a transformative and fearless leader, and telling everyone she would take time off before her next career move. And suddenly missing from the Australia Post executive team is EGM for retail, one of the highest paid women in the organisation. She left the business in January after a two-year stint. Neither was her exit announced by the mail service, as is their way. Both exits having left Susan Davies as the last woman standing among the six fellows at the table. It's a terrible loss, and only Mangus's position is vacant. Sudden exits, like those of Mangus, Noble and Valentine, don't bode well for female longevity at the organisation. And weird, too, how Valentine and Noble were swiftly replaced by men. Noble's deputy, Josh Bannister, was appointed internally last month, while Valentine's replacement, Michael McNamara, started in July. There's a brief chance to appoint a female CFO, but that was missed when Michael Bradburn was awarded the role starting in November. Need it be pointed out that this is all going down while Australia Post lurches forth, groping in a, into a great modernisation of its business. Services might be lumbering ahead into the 21st century, but female representation is apparently blazing a path all the way back to the 50s. And the reporting season continues. Car Group reported revenue rose 60% to $531 million, and adjusted net profit jumped 34% to $162.7 million when compared to the 2023 same half. Electronics and white goods retailer JB Hi-Fi posted sales of over $5.16 billion as net profit fell nearly 20% to $264.3 million. Horizon's net interim net profit doubled 
to $237 million. Oil and gas producer Beach Energy has reported slip in production and wound back its full-year guidance despite posting higher sales in its latest half-year report. Production for the six months came in at 8.8 million barrels, down 11% on 2023 same half. Sales revenue rose 16% to $941 million. Global construction materials giant James Hardy's third quarter net income jumped 39% to US $179.9 million. Fourth quarter guidance is for net, is for net income to be a lower US $165 million, or slightly higher US $185 million. Temple and Webster posted sales of $253.8 million, up 23%, as interim net profit lifted 6% to $4.1 million. Seven West Media interim profit fell to $775 million from $814 million, down 4.8% in the six months of December. Its net profit also plunged to $54 million, down from $114 million in the same period in 2022, down 52.6%. And its group EBITDA was $124 million, down from $205 million, down 39.4%. CSL announced revenue of US $8.05 billion for the, for the half year, up 11% on a constant currency basis, while net profit after tax and amortisation, the company's preferred measure, was 11% higher at US $2.02 billion. ASX-listed financial services company Challenger has beat analyst expectations, posting a $56 million interim profit, up 80% on the prior corresponding period's $28 million result. Breville which makes juices, toast, has kettles, has reported net profit of $83.3 million for the December half, up $6.7 million as sales lifted 2% to $908.5.8 million. Seek net profit for the first half as FY24 was $35.2 million, a 74% decline on the same period in the previous year. Adjusted net profit is expected to, to be $192-$220 million compared to $220 million to $260 million. Falcon Steel's interim profit has fallen more than 50%, coming in at $26.1 million versus $55.4 million. Commonwealth Bank's cash profit fell 3% in the first half of the financial year to $5 billion. Seven groups' overall earnings before interest and tax climbed 18% for the half year, while statutory net profit dropped 36% to $225 million, and underlying net profit climbed 31% to $474 million. Fletcher building earnings before interest and tax declined 27% to $264 million, according to its latest half-year results. Car parts maker GUD Holdings revenue increased 8.6% to $492.6 million. Statutory net profit jumped 19.5% to $51.4 million. IDP Education has recorded an increase to its revenue, up 15% to $579 million. Earnings before interest and tax increased 25% to $159 million. Net profit jumped 23% to $170 million. GrainCore expects to report FY24 underlying EBITDA in the range of $270 million to $310 million, down from $565 million in FY23. Underlying net profit is expected to be in the range of 55 to $95 million, down from $250 million in FY23. Maine's first half revenue climbed 11%, $202.2 million, driven by a rebound in property listings in Sydney and Melbourne, which offset sluggish conditions in the other cities. Profit was up 48.7% to $25.8 million. Downer posted a net profit of $72.1 million, up 5.9%, with revenue in the first half came in at $6 billion, down 1.9%. The company posted a heavy loss of 
$385.7 million for FY23 due to write-downs in its acquisition of Spotless. Financial Services Group AMP has posted a 32% fall in full-year profit to $265 million. 360 capitals values of its investment will likely result in an unaltered statutory loss of 5.4 million. Real estate group Dexas report recorded a statutory net loss after tax for the half year of 597.2 million dollars compared to a statutory net profit after tax of 23.1 million a year ago. Computer shares half year net profit slumped 40.6% to US 105.2 million. That's 162 million Aussie. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Matt Vitale, co-founder and CEO of Virtual, Australia's leading equity crowdsource funding platform. Matt is passionate about democratising access to capital for Australian startups and as a disruptor in equity funding. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongether.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, you catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongether.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.